open a Bible to Philippians chapter 1. We're reading through the New Testament. I don't think Philippians 1 is technically on our week this week, but we're going to look at Philippians chapter 1. It's in the ballpark. Philippians 1. Our passage is going to be verse 3 to 11. As we've gotten into the letters that Paul wrote to various churches, one of the things I've told you each week is that when you can, it's always helpful to understanding one of Paul's letters, one of his epistles, if you can connect it back to the book of Acts. Sometimes when you go back to Acts, there's a lot of information, sometimes there's very little information, but when you can say, hey, this is the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, Let's go back to the book of Acts and try to make that connection and understand the context a little bit. So if you look at Acts chapter 16, verse 1 to 40, which we're not going to look at tonight, you can read about Paul visiting Philippi. And I'll just mention a few things about Acts 16 so you understand how Paul ended up here. This was Paul's second missionary journey. The church in Antioch had sent Paul and Barnabas out. They traveled around. They planted churches. They came back to Antioch. They reported. Everyone said this was great. Then they got ready for round two. And Paul and Barnabas had a disagreement. Barnabas wanted to take Mark. Mark had quit halfway through the last trip. Paul didn't think it was wise to take him. So they agreed to disagree, and they went separate ways. And Barnabas took Mark, and they took off towards Cyprus. And Paul teamed up with a couple of guys, one named Silas and another named Timothy. So Paul and Silas and Timothy go off on Paul's second missionary journey, and their plan was to go to Asia. Now, when I say to you their plan was to go to Asia, I'm not talking about the big green continent on the top right of a risk board. I'm talking about the Roman province of Asia, which was the western part of what we would call Turkey. So you see this map, the Mediterranean Sea is right in the middle. Uh, The tan is barbarian country, and that yellowish tan is the Roman Empire, and the provinces are marked out. And that red blob right in the middle is the Roman province of Asia. Paul said, that's where we're going. And God said, no, you're not. And there's a whole sermon wrapped up in that. That man plans his steps, and God determines his steps. God is sovereign over our planning. I don't know about you, but multiple times in my life I have thought that I had my life figured out, only to realize, nope, I didn't see that coming. Nope, I didn't expect that. Nope, I didn't factor that into my planning. God does that to people. He did that to Paul. And rather than going to Asia, the Roman province of Asia, God sent Paul to the Roman province of Macedonia, which was across the Aegean Sea. And I know you can't see the borders and all of that really clearly, but I'm just making the point that Paul thought he was going to do one thing, and God said, no, that's not what you're going to do. He forbid Paul from going to that place, and he sent him very clearly and very dramatically to Macedonia. So he ends up in Macedonia. This is a major development Because this is technically the first time that the gospel enters the continent of Europe. That's important for people just looking around the room, like you and me. Many of us presumably have European heritage. The gospel came to our forefathers way, way, way back when, in part because this was the first time the gospel entered this continent. So the gospel is now in Europe. Paul ends up in Philippi. He is looking for people to share the gospel with. He finds a woman 
named Lydia, businesswoman. And he shares the gospel with her at a prayer meeting. And the Lord opens her heart to pay attention to what Paul had to say. And Lydia and all of her household, presumably she was a woman of some means, were baptized. Then Paul had an encounter with a young girl who was demon-possessed and whose owners were using her to predict the future and to make profit. And it's a strange story that we're not going to untangle tonight, but Paul delivered her from the demonic oppression. We don't know what happened to her, but presumably her owners now had no use for her. They couldn't make money off of her the way they had been making money off of her. And the story really sort of implies that she might have ended up as part of this new church in Philippi. Paul ends up in jail because the owners of the girl are upset. And he's with Silas and they're singing in the middle of the night and they've been beaten and they've been abused and they've been mistreated. The laws have been broken and not upheld. And the jailer's listening to all of this and in a a very dramatic salvation experience, the jailer comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and he and all his household are baptized. And that's the nucleus of the church in Philippi. A businesswoman who got saved at a prayer meeting Possibly, presumably, a slave girl who had been demon-possessed and the jailer and his family come together and they form this church in Philippi. Paul really didn't stay long in Philippi. He moved on to Thessalonica, then to Athens, and then several other places. However, however, there's good reason to think that the church in Philippi was Paul's favorite church. Now, I know that when you were in grade school and you came to the end of the school year, all of your teachers said to you, you're my favorite class ever. You're the best. And I don't know, maybe Paul said the same thing every time he left town. Maybe he said, you're my favorite church. You're the best church I've ever started. But when you look at the letters that Paul wrote to churches, it certainly seems like this was a special church to him. The closest thing to a rebuke that you find in the book of Philippians comes towards the end and Paul simply says, I want you to help Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. He doesn't even say, stop fighting. He just says, I want you to help these two women agree. You understand, that would have been awkward for the person in Philippi who got this letter the very first Sunday, stood up in church and said, would you please help her and her agree? And he had to read those names out loud. But it's a very mild rebuke. It's very mild. You compare it to the things that Paul says to the church in Corinth, things like, you should not get drunk at the Lord's Supper. Uh, You should not be sleeping with your in-laws. You should not be suing each other in court. Uh, You should not be visiting the temple with the prostitutes, pretty direct. You remember some of the things that Paul said to the church in Galatia. Things like, if you're going to preach a different gospel, you are accursed. And if you're going to insist on circumcision, you should emasculate yourself. A strong language, direct rebuke. And to the church in Philippi, the closest thing that Paul offers to any sort of rebuke is... I want you to help these two ladies 
agree. I tell my kids about 4,000 times a day that they need to agree and get along. So Paul saying at one time to this church, and that's the strongest thing he had to say, uh, indicates that Paul loved this church. Now one side note, we talked about this in our staff devotion time this week. There are letters that Paul wrote to churches in the New Testament where you read the letter, Corinthians, Galatians, and you come away saying, that church is a train wreck. And I, for one, am glad that those letters are in the New Testament because when we look around our church from time to time and feel like we're a little bit dysfunctional, which we are at times, you can say, we're not the first dysfunctional church in all of church history. Paul's churches struggled with these same things. We struggle with these things today. That doesn't mean we're off the hook for dealing with those things, but it does mean we're not alone in that struggle. And those letters are just honest that sometimes church is tough. Sometimes church is tough. You know that if you've been in church any length of time. I'm also thankful for Philippians because it gives you some hope. That church always doesn't have to be miserable. It can actually be a beautiful thing. And that was the situation in Philippi. There weren't major factions. There weren't fighting. There weren't drunks at the Lord's Supper. There weren't deacons visiting the temple prostitutes. There wasn't all of this chaos and confusion. There wasn't false teaching and false doctrine. It was just a unified church participating in the gospel and supporting Paul on his trips. There's no reason when it comes to church... There's no reason to be Pollyanna and pretend like it's all great, it's all perfect. It's not. There's also no need to be a pessimist and to pretend like it's always all terrible because it's not. So, moving on. Philippians. It's known as a prison epistle. It's known as the epistle of joy. And it's known as the coffee cup epistle. So let me just mention each of these in turn. The prison epistle. Paul says in Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon that he was in prison when he wrote these letters. Most Bible scholars think that he was in prison in Rome under house arrest, and you read about that towards the end or actually at the very end of the book of Acts, that he's under house arrest in Rome, he's awaiting a trial before Caesar, and he writes these letters, and we call them prison epistles. The epistle of joy. We talked about this when we preached through the book of Philippians. In Philippians, you'll find the word joy and rejoice, and those two words go together. They have a common Greek root, joy and rejoice, 16 times in 104 verses. So one of the things you do when you study the Bible is you pay attention to words that keep showing up over and over and over again. And when you read this book, Paul keeps talking about joy, and he keeps telling them to rejoice, and he keeps saying that he's rejoicing, and you come away saying there's something in this book about worship connected to joy that came into Paul's mind when he was writing to the church in Philippi. It's the, the epistle of joy. Lastly, it's the coffee cup epistle. You could say it's the camp t-shirt epistle. Today, you might say it's the Instagram epistle. You take a beautiful picture of a sunset in Odessa, you need a nice verse to go with it, go to Philippians. There's something good there. All sorts of verses in Philippians that we love, verses we put on devotional calendars, inspirational calendars, 
all sorts of just sort of warm, fuzzy, encouraging verses as Paul writes to this church. Now, as I talk about coffee cup verses, it made me think. About a year ago on Wednesday nights, we were talking about how to interpret the Bible. And one of the things I told you is be careful of people who simply quote a Bible verse and then say that whatever they're saying is biblical. Because I said to you on that night, don't put the picture up yet, I said to you, I said somebody could quote to you Job 2.9, which says, Job's wife speaking to Job, curse God and die. I said, that's a Bible verse, Job 2.9. Someone could quote it without any context and say, well, that's in the Bible. Curse God and die. And I made the point in passing in that talk, nobody puts that kind of verse on a coffee cup. About a month later, a friend in town walked into my office, limited edition, one of one. You think, the, you think the pastor bobblehead is rare. There are two of those. Actually, there's three of those. There is one of these, and it says, curse God and die, Job's wife. I have never sipped one drop of coffee out of this cup. I'm terrified that something horrible, like in, the last scene of Indiana Jones, when the guy shrivels up and gets blown away. So, when I say to you, this is the coffee cup epistle. I'm not talking about Job 2.9 stuff. I'm talking about Philippians 4.13 stuff. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And yes, I know that verse gets ripped out of context and applied in all sorts of unbiblical ways. But when you understand it in the context, it's a beautiful verse. There's a reason people cling to that verse and love that verse. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, Philippians 4.13. So, we're in the coffee cup epistle. Let's talk about our passage, Philippians 1, 3 to 11. Here's the big idea. It's very simple. Paul prayed for the church in Philippi. That's what we're about to read. Paul's prayer for his friends in Philippi. My hope, as we read this prayer and talk about it tonight, is that two things happen. Number one, we come away with some idea about how we ought to pray for our church. By the way, I hope you pray for your church. I hope that your prayer life includes Emmanuel Baptist Church and the people who are here, the staff who are here, the elders who are here, your Sunday school class, the ministries of this church, people who are older than you at our church, people who are younger than you at our church. I hope that you pray for our church. What should you be praying for? Well, we're going to get some ideas in this prayer. Some Holy Spirit-inspired prayer that Paul prayed for this church that maybe we ought to pray for our church. Secondly, I would come away with some understanding of what it is that God wants to do in our church and through our church. Because again, this is not just Paul praying. It's Paul writing this book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, being carried along by the Holy Spirit of God Writing this book and praying for this church, it gives us insight into what God wants from His church. So, take your copy of the Scriptures, Philippians 1, beginning in verse 3. I thank my God 
in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Father, we're thankful for this book. We're thankful for the hope that is found in Philippians that church can be a beautiful thing, a gospel-centered thing. And we pray that as we understand what you wanted from the church in Philippi that that would be true of us. We pray that as we listen to Paul pray that we would learn how to pray for our church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's a simple question that's going to govern everything we talk about tonight. How did Paul pray for the church in Philippi? I'm just going to give you both of these truths right on the outset and then we'll try to make sense of them. Number one, he gave thanks to God for the church in Philippi. That's verse 3 to verse 8. Secondly, he prays for the spiritual maturity of the church in Philippi. That's verse 1, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 9 to 11. So we read 3 to 11. It breaks into two pieces. Paul giving thanks for the church and Paul praying for the spiritual maturity of the church. That means just 30,000 foot view. When you pray for your church, you should be thankful you say, well, there's a lot of things I don't like about my church. I talked to somebody today at the hospital, not one of our people, who listed a lot of things that she didn't like about her church. So I understand people don't always like everything about their church. That's fine. But you should be thankful for your church. We read from Ephesians 5, we should give thanks in all things to God. So we should be thankful for our church. And secondly, we should pray for the spiritual maturity of our church. So we'll take these in order. The first thing I want to note on this point of giving thanks is very obvious, but I don't want you to miss it because I actually think it's important. Paul is thinking about the church in Philippi. And in his heart, he begins to feel thankful for them. These people mean a lot to Paul. He's thankful for them. And he's writing them a letter. And so what he could have said is, thank you. Thank you. Philippians. Thank you, the church in Philippi. That would have been an appropriate thing to do, but what he's actually doing in this part of the book, in this opening section, is he is thanking God for them. It's an important distinction to make. Let me give you an example of how this could play out in real life. Hypothetically, 
Let's imagine that on a Wednesday night, I stood up at the front of this room and complained to you about the misery of Peter Pan peanut butter. Just complete hypothetical, okay? Are you imagining this? Imagine that some of you, out of your kindness, while you were at the store, thought of me in my distress, which some of you did. Some of you called me from aisle 12 and said, hey, they have peanut butter right here. Do you want some? Some of you didn't even make the phone call. You just picked up a tub and you brought it to me. And I have a pantry now lined with Jif. Okay? So hypothetically, I complain about the peanut butter. Hypothetically, you bring me manna from heaven, Jif peanut butter, and you hand it to me and you say, we love you. You're the best pastor ever. We don't want you to eat that Peter Pan imitation knockoff stuff. We want you to have this. And imagine that I take the jar of Jif and I say, thank you, God, for the peanut butter. And then I just walk off. You might think, well, he's a typical pastor. He's overly spiritual about peanut butter. And he's not a very thankful person. God didn't buy the peanut butter. I bought the peanut butter. I have the credit card receipt to show for it. I'm not sure why you thanked God for that. I'm the one who gave it to you. Do you see the difference? Paul is thankful for these people. But he doesn't just come out and say, thank you. He actually looks to heaven and he says, I am thankful to God for you. That plays out in the entirety of this book. And it's an important distinction that we need to make. Here's how we understand what Paul's doing here. Number one, Paul understood that he had a supernatural fellowship in the gospel with the Philippians. They weren't just friends. They weren't just buddies. In Paul's mind, they had a supernatural fellowship rooted in the gospel that God created. Look at verse 5 in Philippians 1. Paul says that there is a partnership in the gospel. So circle the word partnership if you like to make notes. Draw a line down to verse 7 where he says, you are partakers with me of grace in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of what? The gospel. Now, in English, that looks like two distinct words, partnership and partakers. But do you know what the Greek root of both of those words is? It's koinonia. It's the word that we usually translate fellowship. It's the word that usually in Baptist life means potluck. We have a fellowship hall. What do we do down there? Well, we eat hamburgers sometimes. In a couple of weeks, we're going to eat fajitas. Sometimes we eat ice cream. Some Thanksgiving's coming. We're going to eat turkey. We do a lot of eating in that room. That's what Baptists do. We have potluck. We eat together. We say it's a fellowship. It's in the fellowship hall. That's fine. We don't need to rename the room. But you need to understand, and I need to understand, that fellowship in the Bible does not mean, in the message, potluck. In the ancient world, if you went into business with another person, you invested your life savings in a new business with another person, you had fellowship with that person. You were all in, invested. 
in the ancient world, if you went off to fight in a war, you had fellowship with the men who you fought alongside. That's why soldiers come back from war and they say, those men are my brothers. Something special happens when they share a mission. Business partners sharing a mission. Soldiers sharing a mission. It's why J.R.R. Tolkien, when he sat down to write the Lord of the Rings trilogy, titled the first book, The Fellowship of the Ring. That does not mean the potluck of the ring. You had some elves, they brought cake. You had the dwarves, they brought meatballs. You had the humans, they brought chicken strips. That's not, no, they had a mission. It was life and death. The world, the fate of the world depended on the mission. They were in fellowship together. And Paul understands that this church is united with him in fellowship. They share a mission together. I cannot tell you how important it is that you understand this truth as you think about your role as a church member. We think Paul is the one who had a mission. He went all over the place preaching and planting churches. Paul was a man on a mission. We think today, our missionaries, God bless them, they have a mission. Maybe you think, my pastor has been called by God. He lives his life on a mission. Or maybe you think that about our staff, or you think that about our Sunday school teachers, people in positions of leadership. But what Paul is saying to the entirety of this church, and if you look up in verse 1, he's talking to the saints, the overseers, and the deacons. That's the church members, the pastors, and the deacons. The whole church. And he says, you are in fellowship with me in the gospel. I'm the one traveling the world, but you're the one supporting me. And both of those things are important. You can't have everyone travel the world. You run out of money real quick. And you can't have everyone stay home because the gospel never goes out. So what you need is partnership. You need a shared mission. You need fellowship. And Paul didn't say, you're second-class participants in the mission. He said, you're in the mission. You're partakers with me. You have a partnership with me. You have a fellowship with me, and that fellowship is rooted in the gospel. Notice what he says in verse 7. This fellowship is a strong thing. Verse 7, I hold you in my heart. Sounds like Hallmark, doesn't it? I hold you in my heart. When's the last time you said that to somebody? I hold you in my heart. Notice what he says in verse 8. God is my witness how I yearn for you all. Paul wasn't from the south. You all. I yearn for y'all with the affection of Christ Jesus. When is the last time you told somebody that you yearned? For them, try to think about that this week. Thought about kids that are off at their first semester of college right now, been there a few weeks. Thought about moms and dads who dropped them off at the dorm, set them up in their room, then they had to get in the car, drive home. 
Mom makes it to the end of the block and she's boohooing, crying. Dad's got white knuckles on the steering wheel, shaking, trying not to cry. And they're both thinking, I miss them. I just want to be with them. I left them five minutes ago. All my life, I couldn't wait for this day. Now it's come, and the only thing I want is I want to be with them. Why? It's because they have invested the last 18 years of their life in those young people. They love them. I yearn for you. Made me think about spouses that I've known through the years. People who are members of my church who were older and who had been married a long time and who had lost a spouse, a husband or a wife. You don't get over that. You just find yourself saying, I just want to be with them. I, I just miss them. I just wish they could sit in this room with me and be with me. There's a yearning to be with that person. Why? It's because you spent decades investing in that relationship. Parents spend 18 years investing in their children. Spouses spend decades investing in each other. It made me think of some of our people who have taken numerous trips to Kenya, who when they don't get to go to Kenya for a while, say, man, I really want to go. I just want to, I want to go. I want to be there. I want to see those people. I love those people. I miss those people. I've invested my money and my time and my prayers and my energy and my study and all of these things. There's a yearning to be with our friends in Kenya because you've invested so much in them. Maybe the reason some people don't yearn to be with their church is they've never invested anything in their church. Maybe they've gone for a long time, but they've only taken from their church. And they've never actually invested anything in their church. Paul said, I yearn to be with you. I yearn to be with you. He gives thanks for the church. He knows that his fellowship with them is a supernatural fellowship in the gospel. Here's a second reason he gives thanks. We won't spend as much time on this. Paul recognized the sovereignty of God and the salvation of the Philippians. And this is verse 6, Philippians 1, 6. You can see how he gets to, to verse 6. And it's right in the middle of verse 3 to 8. And he, he emphasizes something different in verse 6. But you see how he gets there. He's talking about partnership and the fellowship and the partakers. And he says, you've been partners with me from the beginning, from day one. And when he says that, when he writes it, his mind goes back to Lydia, the slave girl, the jailer, day one. The beginning of this church. And look what he says in verse 6. He says, you know what? I am sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul knew that God was the one who started the work in Philippi. I mean, Paul traveled there, but Paul didn't start the work. Silas and Timothy were there, but they didn't start the work. Lydia was there at a prayer meeting. She didn't start the work. She invested a lot of her money initially in the new church. She didn't start the work. The jailer didn't start the work. God started the work. 
It wasn't that the Philippians were smarter, better, more intelligent, more with it, more spiritual, more moral, more good, more anything. It was that God opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what Paul was saying. He started the work. He always starts the work. And then Paul said, you know what? God started the work and he's going to be faithful to bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. He starts it. He finishes it. The Philippians weren't going to finish it. Lydia wasn't going to finish it. Jailer wasn't going to finish it. Nobody there had the ability to finish this work. Only God can start the work. Only God can finish the work. I've had people in the last month, at least five people, come to me with some version. None of them have said, Pastor, can a person lose their salvation? But all of them have come with a question relating to the security of our salvation in Jesus. Different angles, different approaches. And we're not going to try to untangle that knot completely tonight. I just want to say to you, Philippians 1.6, it's not just a coffee cup verse, it's a true verse. It is a gloriously and eternally true verse that God starts a work in somebody's life and when He starts it, He finishes it. He doesn't leave it half done. He doesn't leave it undone. He starts the work and He finishes it. So, Paul gives thanks for the church in Philippi. Here's part two of his prayer. He's praying for spiritual maturity in the life of this church. Let's just read verse 9, 10, and 11, and then we'll walk through it. It's not complicated. It's my prayer, Paul says, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul's argument here builds, and we're just going to walk through and note what he says. First of all, he prays that their love would abound. I want your love to abound. Verse 9. Is he talking about love for God? Is he talking about love for each other? Yes. I want you to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. I want the love that you have for God and the love that you have for each other to abound. You've been in church situations at some point in your life, or you've known people who are in church situations at some point in your life where that was missing, where it wasn't what it should have been. Either love for God or love for others or both. But Paul is praying that their love for God would grow and their love for each other would grow. Secondly, he's building on this, he prays that their love would include knowledge and discernment. This is important because it means that the love that Paul's thinking about isn't just the warm, fuzzy, Oprah Disney kind of feeling that overtakes you, right? It's not just you walk in and it's love at first sight with the church. Just these are the greatest people. Just I can tell, I can feel, I just that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a love that is connected to knowledge and discernment. That word knowledge is the Greek word epigenosis. Paul uses it about a dozen times in his letters, and every time he uses it, he's not talking about knowledge of the weather. He's not talking about knowledge of sports. He's not talking about knowledge of politics. He's not talking about knowledge of current events. When Paul uses this word knowledge, he's always talking about knowledge of the gospel. 
I want you to know the truth of the gospel. First, he prays for love. But it's not just a feeling that he's praying about. It's a love that includes knowledge and discernment. Thirdly, he prays that their knowledge and discernment would result in being able to approve what was excellent. Approving what is excellent. That word approve in Paul's day was a word that merchants in a marketplace would use as they were taking coins. These coins came from all over the ancient world. There was no U.S. mint that certified the genuineness of these coins. People showed up with coins from all over the place. And a merchant would have to approve if it was real or not real. And what Paul's saying is, I want your love to grow and your love is governed by knowledge and discernment. And when you piece all that together, you should be able to approve what is real and what is not real in terms of spirituality. I think this is a problem in a lot of churches. I think there's a lot of churches where people pursue knowledge and they think they have discernment And I'm going to tell you what that really means to people. People say, we want to grow in knowledge. We want to grow in discernment. We need deep Bible study. Deep Bible study. Not shallow. Not surface. Deep Bible study. And this is what they mean by deep Bible study. They want to focus on the most obscure passages of the Bible and ignore all the clear, plain passages. And they want to play connect the dots with words from this book to that book and make all sorts of wild, like you ever seen a serial killer movie where they got the ropes up on the billboard and all this stuff? Like you can see that going on in someone's mind. This reminds me of this. Oh wait, and this, I think this connects here. This word's over here. They make all sorts of crazy connections. They focus on hunches. I have a hunch about this. I have a feeling about this verse. They talk about speculative theories, all sorts of just silly stuff. And you know what? Some of these people can quote Bible verses, and they can throw out some biblical ideas at you, and they can stump you every now and then. But there is no overarching ability to approve what is real and what is genuine. And they just get enthralled with any hot new idea that comes along. It sounds great to me. Never heard of it. Love it. There's no ability to approve what's real and what's not real. So Paul says, I want your love to abound. It needs knowledge. It needs discernment. When you put all that together, you can approve what's excellent. Fourthly, when you can approve what's excellent, you're pure and blameless. Again, this is missing in a lot of American churches. The idea that Christian people are called to live lives of purity. The idea that Christian people are called to pursue blamelessness in their walk with the Lord. When Paul talks about love and knowledge, discernment, and approving, he's not saying... I want you to know so much Bible that you can beat the Methodist at Bible Jeopardy. Like, we got to win. Big Jeopardy game coming up against the Methodist. We want to bring the trophy home. 
the end game of all of this knowledge and discernment and approving is not just big heads. It's actually pure lives. That's the connection that he makes. He starts with love. He moves to knowledge and discernment. He talks about being able to approve what's excellent. And he says, when you're able to do that, you're pure and you're blameless. Which means in your Bible study, if the only thing that's growing is your head and not your holiness, you're doing it wrong. However you're doing it, if it's just your head growing and you're not growing in holiness, you need to call a timeout and rethink your approach. Love, knowledge, discernment, approving, pure, blameless. Number five, Paul prayed they'd be filled with the fruit of righteousness. That idea of fruit takes us back to what we talked about in Galatians 5 just a few weeks ago. We talked about the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Works of the flesh, fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit. Here's the fruit of righteousness in Philippians 1. Love, knowledge, discernment, approving what's excellent, living lives that are pure and blameless. The fruit of righteousness. Fruit is a key word. We don't do these things and pursue these things so that God will love us and possibly save us. That's not what fruit is. Fruit is the result of life. God has loved us. God has started a work in us. God will bring that work to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. And the result in our lives is fruit. Not that we get the credit for but that God gets the credit for. Let me tell you a story that helps you understand what Paul's trying to say here. How many of you have seen the old movie Lawrence of Arabia? Anybody see this movie in the theater when it first came out? Anybody want to admit to that? Maybe, maybe not. A few. It's a movie about Colonel T.W. Lawrence. He's a British military officer uh, in what we would call the Middle East in World War I. And the movie just details his life. He's a fascinating character. When he was older, he took a group of his Arab friends to Paris. These men had never left their relatively primitive upbringing and lifestyle. And Lawrence takes these guys to Paris. And they're just blown away by the city and the size of it and the beauty of it and the technology of it. And the one thing these Arab guys from the desert couldn't get their mind around, you know what it was? Running water. I mean, if you come from the desert and you've never seen running water, and somebody checks you into a hotel and all you have to do is turn the knob and water starts coming out, that's a pretty good deal. And these guys were took with the water. They were amazed at this technology. They loved it so much that when it was time to go home, they tried to rip the faucets out of the wall because they thought water comes out of this. I need one of these in the desert. How great would that be? Carry it around, turn the knob, water. And Lawrence literally had to say to them, faucets are great if they're connected to a pipe with water. 
They've got to be connected to the water. They've got to be connected to the source. Otherwise, there's nothing there. That's the idea of fruit. The fruit of righteousness. The fruit of righteousness is not something that you can just manufacture on your own so that God will end up loving you and being impressed with you. The fruit of righteousness is something that only grows in your life when you are connected to Jesus by faith. You've got to be connected to the source of life. That's what Paul's talking about when he talks about the fruit of righteousness. He wraps it all up at the end of verse 11. He's praying for maturity. He ends it with a prayer for God's glory. Paul prayed that their maturity in all of these areas, love, knowledge, discernment, approving, pure, blameless, fruit of righteousness, he prayed that their maturity would result in the glory and the praise of God. The ending application I have for you tonight is nothing earth-shattering or revolutionary. I just want you to take one minute to reflect. And to say, when I pray for my church, does it sound anything like this? I mean, is it even in the ballpark? And I'm not saying to you this is the only way that you can pray for your church, but if this is how Paul prayed for the church in Philippi, probably something we can learn for how we pray for our church, probably something we can learn about what God wants to to see grow in the life of us as individuals, in the lives of our families, in the life of this congregation. As you pray for your church, is it marked by thanksgiving? Is it marked by prayer for spiritual maturity? I think we'll end, and we'll just read this passage again, and we'll read it as part of our prayer. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, Always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Father, we pray tonight that you would teach us to pray. As we think about our church and as we pray for our church, Lord, teach us to be thankful. Give us a heart to pray for the spiritual maturity of the people that we love so much here at Emmanuel. Father, I thank you for those who have come out tonight uh, to sing and to pray and to hear from your word. And as always, we pray that your word would shape us, that your word would be the authority over us 
that changes us, convicts us, encourages us, strengthens us. Father, as we get ready to leave tonight, we're just mindful of the love that you have for us. We're thankful that you have started a good work in us, and we're confident that you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.